Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Today's is a story about kings. Here we are one week away from Easter, and if you believe the story, nothing could be more important. Our story today is the prologue to the Easter story, so it's supposed to matter. This story about kings should matter to us. It should be important to us. But kings aren't really relevant to life in America today. They're characters in fairy tales. There's something interesting to read about in history. We might even watch a royal wedding and marvel at the spectacle. But kings don't matter. They don't impact our daily lives. They don't have authority over us. So yes, it's a story about kings. But this is not a story about a king that you watch in a movie. To the people that Matthew was writing for, a king was a very real person with very real power. A king could be a tyrant. He could take away everything that you've ever loved. He could make you into a slave. He could demand that you do or give anything, and you couldn't stop him. He's the king, and you are not. A king could also be the one to defeat the tyrant. He could be a king that restores dignity that was lost. And just as the evil king could do whatever evil came into his mind, imagine what a good king could do when the whole kingdom stands ready to carry out his command. So as we begin, try to imagine what a king would mean to the people in Jerusalem crying out as Jesus rode into town. Our passage starts as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. Verse 1 says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, And came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So Jesus gives very specific instructions here about how to get a donkey and a colt, which seems pretty trivial. But when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, he wants to do it in a very specific way. Verse 4 tells us why. It says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus wants the people to see this scene as the fulfillment of the passages that we read from Zechariah. He's gathering his supplies. He's getting the colt and the donkey, and he knows the crowd will understand what's happening, and they will play their part. They will recognize that he is the king that Zechariah prophesied about. But We know that Jesus' ministry up to this point he rarely does what people expect him to do. He reinterprets scriptures and he shapes them into a kingdom that people didn't expect. He comes with power that people had never seen and he ministers to Gentiles in a way that the Jews didn't understand. We also know the rest of this story. We know that Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem to kick the Romans out. 
So we're going to try to understand what Jesus is teaching here by looking at three different kings. The first I will call the rightful king. In 1 Kings chapter 1, David is very old. He's about to die, and everyone around him knows it. So David's son, Adonijah, tries to declare himself as David's successor. He invites people to feasts, and he acts as if he is the new king of Israel, and he hopes that everyone around him will believe it. The problem is that David wasn't dead yet, and David had promised the kingdom to Adonijah's brother, Solomon. So when David hears what his son has done, he sends Solomon with a priest and a prophet to Gihon. He has the priest anoint Solomon king, and then he sends Solomon into Jerusalem, riding on David's mule. While David's officials blow a trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. The story sounds a lot like the scene that we read in Matthew. Solomon enters Jerusalem on the king's mule, which is a cross between a donkey and a horse. Jesus enters the city with a donkey and a colt, which is a young horse. Solomon starts his procession in Gihon, which is east of Jerusalem, between the Mount of Olives and the city. Jesus starts at the Mount of Olives and comes into Jerusalem. He would have passed through Gihon and followed the same path that Solomon did. Solomon was David's son. When Jesus arrives, people cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. So in creating this scene, Matthew tells us that Jesus is invoking Zechariah's king, but he's also invoking Solomon. So if Jesus is meant to be like Solomon, declaring himself to be the true king, we might ask, who's the false king? Who is Adonijah in this story? Right after our passage, it's as if he goes straight to the temple. The next verse in Matthew says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. The temple was corrupted. And the people who were behind it, the priests and the Pharisees, they were the ones to blame. There were many places where Jesus rebukes these religious leaders. Sometimes it's for hypocrisy, other times it's greed or corruption. They were the ones that held the power. They determined what was clean or unclean. Their power made them influential and wealthy. They were sort of the religious kings under the Roman emperor. Just like Adonijah, their main concern was making sure that other people thought they were the rightful rulers. When the true king arrives, they want to cover it up. Last week, we heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Immediately after, we see the priests and Pharisees gathering the council to say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." Jesus has just raised a man from the dead, and instead of asking themselves where his power came from, they try to protect themselves. They aren't thinking that a man who could raise a dead person might be the real king. They're thinking that they need to do something to make sure people think they are the real kings. In the end, they're willing to murder Jesus to hold their position. 
So like Solomon, Jesus comes to declare himself the rightful king. When Solomon rose into Jerusalem, it says that people were playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so the earth was split by the noise. We don't know what exactly they said, but we know that they recognized the true king when he arrived. They shouted and they praised the son of David. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, it says, most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus is entering the city like Solomon. He's declaring that there's a false king, but he is the true king. He's come to claim the throne. Next, we get a picture of what he might do with that throne. For that, we're going to talk about the liberating king. The story takes place during the Jews' exile in Babylon. The Babylonians were not kind masters. They were violent, oppressive, and wicked. It's in that context that we get a very strange story from the book of Daniel. The Babylonian king, Belshazzar, is throwing a big party. Daniel calls it a great feast for a thousand of his lords. In the middle of that party, a hand appears and writes four words on the wall. Nobody knows what they mean. So Daniel is a sort of royal advisor, and he has a history of interpreting dreams. So they call Daniel and see if he can interpret what was written. Daniel 5, starting in verse 25, says, And this is the writing that was inscribed, Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mini, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. As it happened, Babylon did fall to the Persians. The Persian general is said to have walked in uncontested. Days later, Cyrus, the king of Persia, arrives, and the people welcomed him by laying palm fronds on the road in front of his horse, just like they would for Jesus. So you can argue that the people of Babylon were already conquered, and so they showed loyalty to Cyrus because they were afraid. But the Jews in exile would have genuinely celebrated Cyrus. They were waiting for their deliverance, and they actually expected him to bring it. Isaiah prophesied about Cyrus, saying, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Isaiah calls Cyrus the Lord's anointed. It's the same word as Messiah. So Jesus is the Messiah, but Cyrus is a Messiah sent by God to deliver his people. And it doesn't stop at conquering Babylon. In the book of Ezra, Cyrus issues a decree to rebuild the temple. He then sends Nehemiah to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. So Cyrus helped to restore Israel after the exile. The Jews watching Jesus enter Jerusalem would have remembered that. They would have remembered Cyrus as a liberating king. 
when they saw Jesus riding into the city on a donkey and thought of Zechariah, behold, your king is coming to you, they may have thought of Cyrus. When they laid down their cloaks and laid branches across the road, they may have been thinking that this is our Cyrus. Just as Cyrus delivered the Israelites from Babylon, this Jesus will set us free from the Romans. Perhaps they were thinking the Romans were about to get their own message that God had brought their kingdom to an end, that they had been weighed and found wanting. It's no wonder that the Jews cheered when he entered the city. But Jesus wasn't about to establish anything like Cyrus's Persian empire. The people who laid down their cloaks might have been disappointed by that. He did come to conquer, but differently. He would establish a new type of kingdom, an eternal kingdom. No one today is gathering to celebrate Cyrus. But this morning, we are gathered, along with billions of others, to celebrate Jesus. Cyrus entered, the king, excuse me, Cyrus entered Babylon as a proud and mighty king. But Jesus entered Jerusalem humbly. So our third and final king is the lowly king. Humility is really at the center of this scene that Jesus sets in Matthew. He's making himself the opposite of a conquering king like Cyrus. He rides a donkey, which is sometimes associated with royalty. We've seen a couple of examples already. But there are two things you immediately notice about a donkey. First is that they don't look very impressive. They're maybe even a little ugly. No one ever talks about the beauty or majesty of a donkey the way that you might a horse. They're owned by poor people, used for humble work, like carrying burdens. Compared to a horse, they are literally low. They are shorter. You're closer to the crowds if you're riding a donkey. The second thing is that donkeys aren't threatening. They depict nonviolence. You don't fight a battle on a donkey's back. You fight on a horse. Donkeys are more docile. They're not particularly fast or aggressive. The verses from Zechariah emphasize this nonviolence. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. So all the traits and images that a donkey conjures up show up here in our passage. Royalty, humility, and peace. Zechariah makes it clear that this is a king, but he is a humble and peaceful king. Jesus is saying to the people of Jerusalem, I am your rightful king, but I'm not the king that you expect. I will liberate you, but not from the Romans. I will conquer, but not with weapons. We get a glimpse into the kingship of Jesus in John's vision in Revelation 4 and 5. It takes us to the throne room of God. There is thunder and lightning, fire, trumpet blasts, and fearsome creatures. And in God's hand, there's a scroll. It's the scroll of the coming kingdom. But it says that no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to open that scroll. 
for all of the power and the majesty and splendor, nobody could open the scroll of the kingdom. So John wept. But then John hears a voice that says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. But the lion of Judah that John sees is not a lion at all. It's not a mighty warrior. John sees a lamb, a slaughtered lamb. But it says that the lamb is a conqueror and the only one who can open the scroll. Again from chapter 5, it says, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So when Jesus taught that the meek will inherit the earth, he isn't just talking about an ethical framework. He isn't trying to get people to accept their lot without complaining. He's teaching a reality of the kingdom of God, a reality of which he was the ultimate example. It means that we ought to be humble people like our king. But it also means that if you've struggled with the same sin for years, don't expect to overcome it by trying harder. If you're anxious, don't expect to get over it by accessing some inner strength. If your marriage is on the rocks, don't expect to fix it by force of will. We should put work and effort into all of those situations. But our effort should be built on prayer. It should include practicing trust and dependence on the Father. It should include meditating on Scripture that teaches that we are broken and in need of help from the Holy Spirit. Our effort should reflect the humility of Christ. So Jesus is the humble king riding on a donkey. He's the lamb who could open the scroll of the kingdom of God. He's the liberating king like Cyrus who frees us from the bonds of sin and death. He's the rightful king like Solomon claiming lordship over each of us and over everything. All of Lent is a preparation for Easter. So as we look forward to a risen king next week, consider this. Jesus came into Jerusalem to announce himself as the true king, and he is still announcing himself as the true king. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, we first need to recognize that he is, in fact, king. You and I are not kings. Our bosses are not kings. Our goals or our plans for the future are not kings. Our children's behavior, what the world thinks of us, our money, our job title, none of those things are kings. As we look forward to Easter, recognize the true king. Second, Jesus came as a liberator. For the Jews under Roman rule, they knew that they needed to be set free. It's not so for us. We live in a sovereign country. We're free to practice our religion. We're not in slavery or exile. But Christ did come to set the nations free, all of the nations, and that includes us. So Ephesians 2 says that we were once dead in the trespasses and sin in, once, in which we once walked, following the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air. 
Apart from Christ, we follow the ruler of this world, Satan himself. We need to be set free from Satan's rule and from our own sin. By God's grace, it says in Romans 8 that we have been set free. It says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Apart from Christ, we are captive to Satan himself. But this week, we praise the one who sets us free from all of those things. This week, we join the people in Jerusalem crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. This week, we praise this Jesus who who saves, who liberates us from sin and calls us sons and daughters of the living God. This Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning, and we celebrate Jesus as King. We ask that you would give us the humility of Christ, to see our need for you, and to submit ourselves to you as King. Remind us of the joy that we are participants, even heirs in your kingdom. I pray that truth would sustain us this week as we look forward with joy to celebrating the resurrection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.